Today's episode comes to you in partnership with Rotacloud, the people management platform for shift-based teams. Rotacloud lets managers create and share rotas, record attendance and manage annual leave, all from a single web-based app. It also makes work simple for your team, allowing them to check their rotas, request holiday and even pick up extra shifts straight from their phones. Try Rotacloud's time-saving tools today by heading to rotacloud.com forward slash fill. Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where each week we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Matt Burgess, director of Kiowa Limited and owner of One Incredible Story. Coming up on today's show, Matt asks one of life's great questions. How long will it take me to peel the sack of carrots? Matt's story catches Phil off guard. I, I didn't see that coming. I did not see that coming. And Matt reveals that he mixes with A-listers. Harry Minogue's in the room. She wants to speak to Matt. All that and by God a whole lot more as Matt chats us through part one of his unbelievable story so far. Sometimes a story comes along that just blows you away. Matt's story is exactly that. He was an awesome guest, very free with his journey and his time. So much so, I've split our chat down into two. Second part airing on Friday at 8pm. He's a natural storyteller and has some quite incredible anecdotes throughout, a lot involving bad choices. Nevertheless, told with humour and deep self-reflection, there's inspiration and comedy in here in equal measure. Please share wherever you can and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. It really does help more than I can say. Enjoy. Ah, a huge hospitality meets. Welcome to Matt Burgess. Hello, Matt. How are you doing? I'm really well, Phil. How are you doing, mate? Yeah, very good indeed. Where, where do we find you today? Uh, I am in East London. I am in a place called South Woodford, which is, I suppose, east of East London. Right. In beautiful, sunny, foresty area near Epping Forest, basically. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, yeah. We, we've been here for about a month. Sorry, about a year. Um, yeah, better not uh, better not say that in front of the wife. Yes, I've been here for about a year. <laughs> Um, and I have just started our renovations, um, yeah, oh, so it's right. all looking good. At least you didn't say being here for a year feels like 10. <laughs> She'll be like, been here for a month? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah just time flies, does it? Just feels absolutely. like... Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> how's, so how's how's life? What's, what are you up to these days? Wow. Um, how is life? Life is busy, Phil. Life is really busy. So Fantastic. what have I been What have I been up to? You know, my, my sort of week consists of uh, Monday to Thursday, usually doing food development or, you know, cook-offs for the restaurants that I've been working for. Friday is a bit of a self-care day. However, last Friday was doing a little bit of work and Today is uh, doing doing this podcast, which is which is really cool. Which is not really working. It's about no. just having a bit of a chat. And, no, you know. I mean, it's um, this is self care. This is it's Friday. It's this is Absolutely. this is a self care thing yeah. to do for sure. Because that actually, I, I obviously I had more than one hundred and forty people on the show now, and um, so many people say it's a really cathartic experience to kind yeah. of reflect really and uh, see where you've come from, where you are now. Nobody's regretted anything that they've done. So, <laughs> well, I think that there is an element that you, you, for me personally, it's you. You get to an age where I feel successful in everything that I have achieved in my life. I've ticked most of the boxes that I needed to tick, and I'm I'm really happy with the way that life's turned out. And yes, with all the bad stuff that's happened, it's it's defined who I am, and that's the that's the great thing about. Yeah life i suppose yeah you just yeah. gotta appreciate it 
Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, you you say that you are happy with the success levels you have achieved. There's obviously a journey behind that. So let's kick that off. Take us all the way back to the uh, the beginning. How did you get into hospitality in the first place? Wow. Okay. So Do you know everybody says that. <laughs> you know, the, 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 wow yeah but, but actually it's just a big question isn't it like you know because a, a lot of people think well I've had some people who've just gone do you know what I just knew I just knew from the outset that that was going to be it but the vast majority of people didn't that, this is the glory of the industry for me is is that you don't really have to have a master plan you can just kind of get going and see where it takes you and and that's pretty much where it was it was as I, we were just chatting earlier on before we, we started this, I, I came from quite a poor upbringing. When I was probably about 10 years old, my mum was made redundant from her job. Up until that point, you know, we, we were pretty good. You know, we, we had a bit of money coming in. Mum was a single parent. Father was never around. I never met the guy. And then... And you're from New Zealand originally. I'm from New Zealand. Yeah, Wellington, New Zealand. Yeah. Um, and we lived in a little place at the time. It was probably one of the poorest areas in New Zealand. Right now, it is probably the Hampstead Heath of really? New Zealand. Yeah. And I'll, I'll get on to that story anyway. But well, It's funny um, how the, uh, the real estate um, people would say, you know, it's an up and coming area, right? Back in the day. Because yeah. there's, uh, there's uh, Edinburgh is one of my favourite cities. And Leith used to be a place in Edinburgh that you would never go. And now it's you know hotbed yeah. of food and beverage and uh, you know beautiful apartments and all of that sort of stuff. So it up and came and has arrived. Yeah, it, well, it was it was exactly the same thing that that happened in in Wellington, and where I was sort of born and raised. It was you know great great childhood. We had the New Zealand forest as our playground and. It was very beautiful, but it was also very tough, especially when mum got made redundant. And she was always a king cook. My grandmother, you know, was a long line of British women who knew baking, like didn't need a recipe, just had been trained from mother to daughter, mother to daughter, all the way down old school English colonials. And and mum wanted to flip that up a bit. She was always felt a bit different. And so she wanted to do savoury style. So her dream was always to run a little delicatessen, you know, make a little bit of cash on the side and follow her dream. And she did. Um, So when she got made redundant, she got quite a big payout. And um, she bought a delicatessen in a small sort of uh, suburb called Hai Tai Tai in in Wellington. And throughout my younger teenage years, she, she had that. And unfortunately, when she opened, there was a supermarket that opened around the corner from her. So over the period of about two years, I just watched her go from, you know, a a reasonably cool neighbourhood delicatessen into a business that just ran itself into the ground. Um, And it was awful. It was awful to watch. So she became bankrupt and she lost everything. And our house house was emptied and it was was horrible. It was really horrible. At the time, I was... 13 14 years old i didn't really know what to do or how to do at at the time i wasn't getting into a lot of trouble at school where the area that i grew up in was very heavily gang uh, related and gang involved and my only dream and aspiration was to join the gang that do you know um, what a, a, a story that i hear quite a lot really in terms of um 
if the if the I suppose the choices are taken away from you, then what choice do you have, right? And that's the mm. the 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 tricky thing in a situation like this. I had a, a guy on the show called Muhammad Ali, not the Muhammad Ali. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, and um, you know, he he talks of the the desire to join the gang because that was really mm. the only way that he could see a a kind of way out, as it were, in inverted commas. Mm. And then his story becomes like it's incredible. Uh, like he kills mm. somebody, and you know, and that changes everything. And it's just mm. it's remarkable. And it's it's one of those things I remember talking to him about it. You know, choosing the right thing to do and the easy thing to do are, you know, they're mutually exclusive, right? It's it's usually the easy option that takes you into somewhere that you absolutely shouldn't follow. In retrospect, when I look back at myself at that point, and and this has defined me as a father is you always need two parents, I've always felt, in a relationship, especially when you're bringing up children. Um, it, it, and whether you're together or not, you need to both be present in that child's life because there is so much imbalance, especially in young men, where your testosterone levels, where your need to rebel, your your want to fight, you want to fight against everything that you... You try to cut these parent strings away and you don't really understand or can process these emotions and to my mother god god bless her you know she is the strongest woman that i know of having to navigate those emotions and those feelings especially while she was going through this bankruptcy and especially like you know we came home one day and everything was gone even my socks you know the the, wow. the bailiffs just came took everything and luckily we had god, some good friends what, and family what on socks yeah, I know. I know it was used it was socks ridiculous. as well, right? <laughs> it was ridiculous, and it was even it was quite shocking. You know, there was a. You, I, I'm not sure if you do remember these like tapes, and I used to record songs off the radio. You know, they didn't yeah, take yeah. those. Oh, I'm of that generation too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was it was absolutely insane to to go through that. And you know, I, I wanted to help, and I wanted to help my mother. And I was going through a lot of personal things at the time. And uh, when it was at one point where I was, and it was just after mum had lost a delicatessen that I was arrested. And I I had a need to start becoming a criminal. I wanted to become a criminal to make the gang aware that I was ready for this. So I started to do some minor things like selling weed and some minor shoplifting offences. So twice in one week, I got caught for shoplifting. I was a terrible shoplifter, to be honest. Absolutely terrible. <laughs> and I wasn't a really great weed dealer either. I smoked it most of the time. Right. Um, well, know your strengths and weaknesses, right? That's the, uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so I got to a stage in my life where I was probably about 14 going on to 15 years old. and the the police I, I had been expelled from school for marijuana for selling marijuana at school so the, the police identified that i at that time was i was on a cusp of going either way now most of my friends and family and other people were also involved in the gang some way as well and they could see that i really wanted to go that way however my mother she had a different mind on her. She didn't have uh, the mentality of that's the only way to go. So she always taught me that I have the power to make decisions. And 
throughout my life, I've been in so many crossroads and I feel that she's always had that guiding spirit or that guiding voice to me to say, you know what is the right path. You also know what's the wrong path. So always take the right path. And at the time, the police put me into a care system, which it wasn't really a care system because at 15 years old, I didn't really need to live at home. I didn't need to live with mum. But it was what we call a prison for boys, a prison for young boys in between the ages of 12 up to about 16. And these were, it was a sort of a, um, it wasn't, I won't call it a prison. It was a house where they were trying to help rehabilitate you through the church. Now, I'd like to say 100% that I am not religious in any way. Sure. But I would say that the techniques and the fundamentals that they taught me when I was there are the building blocks of where I am today. So, you know, at this house, it was called Tapan Tapan Boys House. At this house, they started to teach you the things that most of the people there had no fathers. So they were mentors and trying to mentor young boys to say, okay, let's teach you how to drive. Let's teach you how to cook. Let's teach you how to build a small dog house. Let's teach you how to work with metal. Let's teach you how to you know, fix simple things on a car. So these things taught me the value of learning something and feeling achievement, which, you know, at that really young age that I hadn't have, I had a mother that was slowly, you know, drinking herself away from the problem that she had with bankruptcy and obviously feeling a hell of a lot of guilt. And then you've got this young boy who is screaming out for help and screaming out I don't know which way to go in life there's nobody to control all these emotions Mm. so I'm going to let them out in every way I can the only way that I can was to impress other people and to make other people look at me to say wow he's really hard or oh my god he's 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 crazy why is he doing all these type of things so I I did this for did this for a year um stayed away from home it was the first time in the longest time I'd ever stayed away from home and I went home and, and I I just got my driver's license so it was that was one of the biggest achievements that I ever got it was a learner's license in New Zealand which is uh you know lasts for like six months until like you can then apply for a more full license basically yeah um so I, I I went back home and I I calmed down a lot and and when I got home I had the opportunity to prospect for the game which is a, a quite a long and tedious process. And at the time, I had a lot of friends that weren't involved in the game that I spoke to about it. And that was one of the crossroads. And they said, look, you know what is the right path and you know what is the wrong path. So, you know, please make the right decision. And and I did. I said, look, I'm not going to do it. And my best friend at the time, he went and prospected for the game. Oh, and it's like a slide indoors moment, isn't it, really? I mean, it, it completely was. I can even pinpoint it to the day where I told my friend, I'm not going to do it. And he's like, I'm going. And he yeah. went to the gang pad or what they call it, a like a, a meeting house and that. And um, yeah, it was horrific. He spent the next 17 weeks getting beaten the hell out of every single day. So bad oh, once life. he got put, into, got put into hospital. So I would have had that to enjoy, but that's how they condition people to get right. into the gang. kind of a rites of passage in their absolutely, way. Absolutely rites of passage. So um, I basically stayed at home and went on the dog. 
started to. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but no, no, I'm, no. I'm, I'm kind of a, a marvelled by this in in some ways because, in actual fact, this is what we were just talking about in the in the sense that actually neither of those choices are great on the face of it, right? One, yep. you go off to the gang and you get the shit kicked out of you for 17 weeks. Two, you go on the dole and you're basically on the breadline pretty much every yep. day of your life. And maybe going to the gang takes you away from the breadline, but maybe the you know obviously the breadline takes you away from the gang. There's, I don't, this sounds really flippant and probably a bit throwaway, but there's kind of pros and cons to both. So it's one of those, especially at that time, just I just I, I can't get my head around it. like imagine if you'd made the other choice but yet you've still gone into something which is going to be tough you know it's not going to be you've not chosen the easier option perhaps you know again, again what we were talking about before about naivety I was naive like you know all my friends around me were on the doll I had two friends though Rob and Adam who uh, are still my close friends today Adam uh, was a, a apprentice learning panel beating, and Rob was working as a basically a truck delivery driver, which were which you know in themselves when I look at them now they they're probably not the most flashiest job but they were working, and when they were working I was watching them come home with money. Now I never had any money because I'm living from week to week to week. My mum you know she had to go back into work as well so she her job was a secretary so before she got made redundant she was a secretary for a large company in New Zealand Toyota so she had to go back and do that and she had to take a huge pay cut and start from the bottom again and this is to a woman who was probably 42 to 45 years old of of having to rebuild her life from zero heavily you know into drinking at the time so it was for me, it was a really just relaxed. Okay, cool. I had no aspirations in life. I had no dreams. I had no really want to go and, and do anything. Now, under sort of the dole in New Zealand, you had to do these things called access courses. So I had the choice to do one of three access courses. One was hairdressing. One was horticulture. And one was cooking in, in a restaurant to learn how to do that. So yeah. I chose to try out horticulture. I was like, I like, I don't want to be a chef. I don't want to go do anything like that. You know, that's the last thing I wanted to do. I loved working outside. I loved getting really stoned and working with a shovel and making things look beautiful. That was <laughs> that was the thing that I that I really wanted to do. So I started training for that, and I started training for about three weeks and. Um, it was really early starts in the morning. And so we would have to get up at four in the morning and we would go to places and landscape it basically. So they would say, right, you need to do that. And uh, just, there was something missing. There was something like, I just don't know, you know, if this is what I want to do or don't know yeah. if, if this is where I want to be. So I just didn't turn up. I suppose, well, I was about to say, I suppose at least at this point, at least it's uh, it's teaching you about discipline. Like if you have to get up at four o'clock in the morning to go and do the thing, then you'll, but then I what you just it. said, yeah, what you just said was, is that ultimately, <laughs> yeah, no, no discipline here because yeah. I don't enjoy yeah. doing it. Exactly. I woke up one morning, I was like, I'm not going. And, you know, they, they can't make me go. And so, you know, my, my social care worker who was 
also working with me from the times when I was in the Tapan Boys Home, got in contact and said, hey, you have to finish one of these courses. So why don't you try working in a restaurant? So I was like, yeah, okay, cool. So we went in and uh, we, we did cooking. Now, going back to talk about my mother and my grandmother, that they were both very good cooks throughout my life. I always watched them and I always understood what they did. And my mum always would ensure that I knew how to do the basics of cooking. So when we started cooking, they were like, okay, cool. So this is how you trust a chicken. And I'll be like, man, I've been doing this for years. And I did it and put it on the side. And people said, this is how you boil an egg. And I was like, honestly, you guys don't know how to boil eggs? What the hell is, what, what the hell is going on? So yeah. I was going through this course and I realized quite quickly, the tutor was like going, mate, you know, you know, you know a lot. You know, like you, you need to learn a lot of discipline, but you know a lot. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. You know, and it felt for the first time in my life that I knew more than somebody else. And there were a lot of people in this class who who I befriended and they were in very similar situations to me. They had no sort of real sort of goal in life, no line, no want to do sort of anything. Anyway. I finished the course, I managed to get it done. Again, the sense of achievement was really great. I remember the tutor saying to me, you should do it. You should get into cooking. And I was like, yeah, I was very much like, I'm just doing this so I can get my doll payments. That's all. That's the only reason. Right. I don't want I don't want to be a chef. And this how is, old are you at this point? I'm probably about 16, 16 okay, or 17. still very young then. Yeah. So it came up to... Uh, I, at the time, around about 16, 17 years old, I had always played the guitar in my life and I loved music. And uh, I had been I had been sort of practicing the guitar and, and, and I had a little acoustic guitar. My dream was always to have an electric guitar. So it was it was one Friday night. I'll never forget this. And I was at home playing the guitar and stuff. And uh, basically the. I had a friend of mine that worked in a restaurant in Wellington and he called me up and he's like, mate, I'm, I'm literally, I'm in the shit. I need somebody to come and wash the dishes tonight. I know that you're at home doing nothing. Why don't you come in and wash the dishes? And I was like, okay. And he's like, look, I'll pay you, pay you a hundred dollars for the night. And, uh, my, my kitchen bought it. And, yeah, I know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they were, they were desperate at the time. So yeah. I was like, okay, cool. So I went, Went to this restaurant. I went in there, and I'll never forget. And it was it was probably a very similar feeling or a very similar experience to Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential. The first time he walked into a kitchen and watched it, you had the sous chef there, which this big burly German guy who was as hard as nails. You know, the kitchen was just like this rabble of social you know, social discards, basically, yeah. of people who were just so, like, gnarled and, and pirate-like. And they were all like me. They were all just wrong, you know? And everyone was bantering and swearing and throwing pans. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, what, what the hell is going on here? And, like, they were like, okay, jump in the pit and just go for it. And... To be honest, that first that first night, I was awful, man. I couldn't keep up. By the end of the night, there was dishes to the roof. And basically, I'll never forget, the, the head chef was an Irish guy, hard as nails Irish guy. He had cooked, he had owned his own restaurant in New York for 20 years. His oh, biggest wow, right. customers, 
his biggest customer was John Gotti. Okay. Right. He was yeah. like, this guy, he knows how to cook. He knows everything about the restaurant scene. And he had opened this restaurant in Wellington. And, um, you know, he, he sort of ordered all these chefs to jump on and give me a hand. And everyone was like really pissed off. And I didn't know. I'm naive sitting there like, going, well, this is fun. This is like so cool. And he pulled me outside for a cigarette. And we're out the back having a cigarette and a beer. And he's like, hey, I'll tell you what, like the guy that um, that you replaced tonight, he cut his hand. So he's going to be off work for a few weeks. How about like you come work for us? Like what you, I'll offer you a job. And you come work for us a little bit. You know, your friend told me you're at home. Your mum's been made redundant. He's like, well, why don't you come in and just learn a skill? And I was like, look, I'm going to go away and I'm going to think about it because, like, I'm living the life at the moment. It was just getting dull. I was playing my guitar. I was just like, you know, it, it was just a really incredible situation. So I went home and the only real sort of mentor I had in my life at that time was my uncle. And I remember calling my uncle and, talking to him and my uncle was a tradesman he is a carpenter by trade and he's like look i know that you want to do music and i know music is your passion but learn a trade and then you've got something to fall back on if the music doesn't work so again it was a cross period of my life where i said okay cool like let's let's give it a try so i went in and uh you know after about six months of of real hard work you know they took me on as an apprentice and i did my apprenticeship under kevin burke who uh you know, I owe him my life. And I remember him saying to me, he's like, you know, I'm I'm so glad that you never joined the gang, you know, that that you never got there because like you're you're a lot better than that. You're actually mm. really good when you put your head and your mind to it. And at the time I didn't know, but like I'm dyslexic and I have ADHD. So this is what all the emotions and feelings yeah, and everything frustration that's that comes with that. Yeah. Yeah. If you're not being taught around yes. that as it were you just yeah. got to fit especially back in that era right i mean uh, there was no probably at the time there was no real uh, i suppose acceptance that that was a thing you yeah know, you, absolutely not you Nine... probably just marked as stupid that was probably effectively what happened i can actually show you report cards that says you know just doesn't have any attention doesn't want to learn doesn't want to do anything because I didn't, I, you know, and I've always hated math because it's always confused me. I've always said that I've hated it, but I just didn't know it. I didn't know how it's, to do it. So Yeah, and but also it, there's a lot around the way that you learn it as well, right? Like I, I, having been, we obviously get onto the rest of your journey as we get to it, but, you know, we, we know that you are have been a head chef and beyond mm. that, you need to have some financial capability right to to be a good chef so yeah you obviously can learn it it's about how it's taught to you yeah and 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 this is where i started to discover what is the best way for me to learn and that is through mimicking so that's the way that i've always learned is by copying other people and copying yeah. other chefs i've worked with or copying other techniques from other people to to get to that situation so Two years, I was a I was an apprentice and a kitchen porter, and it was uh, it was a very Miyagi style training. Right. It was ve- it was very much like okay, so you know the first part of my training was that you need to learn how to keep on top of the dishes because at every at the end of every service they're to the roof, and the chef is they all would all look at me and kind of go you need to move quicker, and I I'll never forget the moment that it, 
clicked to me. It was like, oh, so if I run and do this really quickly, I don't need to focus on that so much, but these ones you do. So start to organize yourself. And once I had done this, then they were like, okay, now we're going to add jobs while you're doing this. Mm. So I'll be like, oh, I could never do that. And they were like, cool, well, let's show you how to cut an onion. And what I want you to do is dice four liters of onions every day. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. This is easy. Boom, boom, oh, do some dishes, go back. Boom, boom, do it. Yeah. Easy. Then the next, easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then the next day was like, okay, that's two four liters. Right, there's three four liters. Okay, there's four sacks. And then I used to challenge myself against the clock and say, how long will it take me to peel a sack of potatoes? Or how long will it take me to peel a sack of carrots? And I'll try and get better and better and push myself harder as I as I did this. So mm. I started going through all of this. And then I, I, you know, once you start to learn, or what for me personally, I started to learn the job and learn how to be in the kitchen. I used to go in early. I used to wake up excited, jump on my bike, ride to the restaurant used to get in there first thing in the morning. I used to do all my jobs and then set up the chef section, set up the other chef sections, and then set up my section. All the chefs will come in and they'll be like, oh, wow, if everything's out. And I was like, yep, cool. you got your four liters there. you got those ones there. Onions coming in. Your bones are in the roast for the stock and da-da-da-da. And, you know, and it was really cool. And so, like, I started to really sort of feel like, yeah, yeah, I can do this. But there was some reason, and it was very much a Miyagi moment where, two years I'd been doing all this. And then I sort of, the chef came in one day and it was a Saturday lunch. And he said to me, he's like, um, today you're going to do my section. And everyone in the kitchen just stared at him and looked and said, you're going to put Matt, Matt on your section. He was like, let's see what the boy can do. Yeah. Um, and I killed it. I absolutely killed it. I ran that kitchen better than him. What was the, what was the feeling when he said that? Was there a moment of "Oh my god," or was it yeah. a, you know I can do this? It was like first and foot, the first initial reaction was like I I'm gonna fuck this up, but then I was like, if he believes in me, I believe in me, yeah. so I'm just gonna do it. Uh, I'm yeah. gonna do it. And my friend was on the fifth section; he was right next to me, and he's always been massively positive in my life, even to this day. And he's like, "You got this, bro." And if you go down, we'll go down together. And I was like, yeah. And we had such a great lunch. And I remember the general manager and one of the owners kept on poking there. We had the small hatch. Kept on poking his head through there. Going to go, Matt, you're doing amazing. Loads of great feedback from the customers. They're absolutely loving you and stuff. And then yeah. sort of at, at the end of it, me and the chef went out. Um, you know, well, I was only working lunch that day. And he, and he took me out to his local pub. And that's where I learned to never drink with Irishmen ever again um, as a, as a that's celebration good advice very good advice <laughs> um, which he was he loved to drink but yeah we had we had some really really uh, great times there so yeah so that was sort of my first restaurant experience and then I, I can see after... again sorry sorry to interject but I no, just, not, the, not what not. I really really love about that is the like look how far you've come in a very short space of time really in the grand yeah. scheme of things, right? From that yeah. moment where you walked in on that first night whereby you you know, you know, couldn't get on top of the dishes at all to ultimately running a, you know, the head chef section. Um, yeah. You know, what? and uh, how long was the time frame from start to that point? I would say probably two and a half years. Um, right. it, it, it was, yeah, it was about that. But I think 
what was more unique than everybody else in the kitchen is that where the kitchen porter was placed is that I was, uh, where they had set it up was at the head of the kitchen and you could actually see every single section. So right. consistently, as I was doing the prep, I'm watching all the chefs and how they cook things. I'm like, he's put that in the pan, put that in the pan. He sautés that, he puts that, puts the pasta in, puts it in the bowl, hands it to the chef. He garnishes it, goes on the pass, goes to the expediter, he takes it out. Okay, yeah. cool. And I watch this a hundred times a day. Yeah. And I'll be like, okay, cool. So that's easy. So that takes four minutes. That takes that. That takes that. And it's a, it's, it's a technique that I took with me right into every kitchen that I worked in as well, where I've always tried to start all of my chefs on the KP area to stand there and to be able to watch what's going on. Or if not on there, at least have them on the pass where they could see everything and they understand the motions and the movement of the kitchen and yeah. everything that comes to the point and goes out all on time. So, A very quick word, if you'll permit me. Providing great customer service is all about having the right people in the right place at the right time. And that's exactly where our sponsor, Rotacloud, can help. Rotacloud makes managing your team's rotas, attendance and annual leave easy. With its simple drag and drop planner, you'll be creating rotas for your team in minutes. While its built-in budgeting tools mean you'll know exactly how much you're spending on staffing before sending the rota out. One Rotacloud customer actually reported that they'd gone from spending 25% on their monthly turnover on wages to spending just 19%, all thanks to Rotacloud's intuitive rota planning software. So do your business a favour and head over to rotacloud.com forward slash fill to start your 30-day free trial and find out how much easier organising your team can be. Now let's get back to it. Yeah. What I also love about that um, story is camaraderie that you guys clearly had that, you know, here's this moment whereby you're going to be on the head chef section and everybody else is probably rolling their eyes, but then, you know, properly get behind you and, and you smash it. Um, you know, Yeah, they, they, they taught me about camaraderie. And that's the thing, as I said, like I grew up an only child. I didn't have a father. I had many friends and I, I'm blessed to have them all in my life, but it was where I'd been searching for all my life to feel a part of something where finally I had. So the yearning to want to join a gang is that I wanted to be part of something bigger. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't know that you, you could do that in any sort of work ballot or work site or, you know, or, or having, a group of people or a group of friends around you that understood you because they're the same. Yeah. That's, that's kind of the best way that I can explain it. So it was, yeah, it was a really beautiful thing. Yeah. As I said, when the first time I read kitchen confidential and he said he walked into, worked into that first kitchen, it was, I was like, that's exactly what happened to me. I was just blown away with these guys. And there was no such thing as health and safety back then. Yeah, there was no, there was like everywhere was wooden boards. There was no sanitizer. There was like people like dipping their spoons. Like you taste with your finger. Always taste with your finger. Yeah. Never with a spoon. You know, yeah, um, no health, was, no safety. No, no, there was zero, absolutely <laughs> zero. I cut off like multiple fingernails, and it was just like, yeah, wrap up some bandage. I'm sure that half of Wellington has my DNA in them. Oh. So <laughs> lovely. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, soon soon after that, I uh, I I left Oxide and I did a sort of a a few jobs around Wellington. Um, some that I am proud of, some that I just did for money. And I think during this time, I was sort of finding my feet of what I want to do. That restaurant 
taught me about what is good food. The other restaurants that I went to, I just did for money. And my goal was by that time still not to be a chef, but to do music. Really? Right. And that's that's what I always wanted to do. I've always been a massive fan of, of music and probably came up to about 1997 where I've been cooking since probably 1990 on and off in various sort of, well, sorry, working with food since 1990, um, working around in various restaurants and stuff. And uh, I was coming up to a stage where I'd worked at a couple of good places and I just really couldn't hold the job down. And it was just because I didn't like being told what to do and I didn't like being not the head chef or not in control of my environment. So I'd started at a place called Monte Cucina in, in Wellington. It's in Blair Street. Um, it's not there now, unfortunately, but um, it was a great restaurant and a, a, a really great head chef running it. And I'd been there for, oh, I don't know, it was about two weeks and I had a day off. And previously to this, my best friend at the time had said, I'm, I'm going to go to England. It's my dream to go to England. And when he left, he did a course in graphic design at school. And when he left, the bank that he was banking with, where he got a student loan from, offered him a startup loan. And he said, like, why don't I take the loan? I'll pay for you and me, and let's go to England together. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Anyway, this was okay, six then. months <laughs> Yeah, but this was six months previous to that. I had no money. I was poor. Mum was like destitute, you know. I was giving like money to mum every week to make sure. So I, uh, so six months to that day, he had gone skiing for six months, and then he came back and he's like, "Look, I've got some really bad news." This happened on the day on the day that he came to tell me that he had no money left that he could lend me to go to England. So he had another idea where we would fly. He would fly to Australia. He would get a flat. He would get everything. I could save some money, go to Australia, and we'll save up there. Then we would uh, fly to England. I was terrible with money, as I said. Maths, absolutely out of the out of out of the uh, out of the atmosphere. I was just absolutely crap with it. At that time, I knew in my heart of hearts that I'd never go to Australia. It's just not going to happen. And then my girlfriend at the time, this is even before mobiles. We had a cordless phone um, and we're sitting out the back garden. She came up and she's like, hey, um, your mum's on the phone. And I was like, yeah, cool. And, and picked up the phone and I was like, hi, mum, what's up? And she's like, you need to come home right now. And I was like, what's going on? She goes, you need to come home. And I was like, oh, my God. So my friend who I was with, he had his car and we said, okay, look, I need to go home. I don't know what's going on. Mum's not in a fucking good way. So we all jumped in the car. Again, all my friends were friends with my mother as well, so we are all really worried. Pulled up outside the house. She was sitting on the uh, veranda. Basically, she's crying. I jumped out of the car, ran to her, picked her up. It's like, what's wrong? What's wrong? She pushed a piece of paper into my hand and I opened it and it said, confirmation, $100,000. Uh, my mum had won a scratch card. Yeah. Oh, my God. So uh, anybody listening to this won't have just seen my face just drop. <laughs> Uh, and that's what the silence was, by the way. But um, holy moly! Like, so uh, after all this kind of hardship that that she has been through, there was this moment of joy, and it's almost like she didn't really know how to handle it. She didn't. 
she we had been through hell the last 12 13 years of our life we'd been through hell i was ragged with uh credit uh card debt so was she we had no savings we had no money and it changed it changed both of our lives mm. you know that's the it's the best way to put it one of the greatest things is after that you know you, you do the whole thing you go to you go to Camelot, you uh, which is what is called in New Zealand. Is Camelot is like oh, I think it used to be home. here as well, actually. Oh, okay, yeah, it's yeah. like the home of Lotto, and you get like investment advisors and you know people that would sort out bank accounts and all this type of stuff. But one of the greatest things is that we went to an appliance store, and uh, where my mum stood there, and uh, this young sort of guy that was on work release or day release or something from school came out and was like hi guys how can i help you today and my mum just took a deep breath and she goes yeah i want that 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 and she pulled out 20 grand cash and she said i'll pay cash that was one of the greatest things yeah i i i was so proud of her to do that and i'll never forget the look on the guy's face he's like i think i need to get my manager and they came over and yeah it was great mum got a new 60 inch tv screen and you know, she paid off all my bills, paid off all her own bills. And then um, it came to the came to the effect. She goes, okay, you've got two options here in life. This is your crossroads. You can either travel well, the world. An, another one. Another crossroads. Yeah. <laughs> one, yeah. one of many, Phil. Yeah. She goes, you can, you can travel the world or you can stay at home and I'll put down a deposit on the house for you. And I said, what would you do, mum? And she goes, I'd go travel the world. And so I was like, See you later. Within two weeks of her winning the money, I was on a plane to Australia. Right. Fabulous. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, um, I, I didn't see that coming. I did not see that coming. Um, and yeah. this is the joy of having chats like this is that, you know, I, you're, you've already taught us a, a hell of a load of lessons on, you know, decision making through hardship and, and, and things like that. And actually, uh, a question that I had lined up on the basis of what, what we were talking about to this point was is that mm. do you think looking back on it the the hardship that you experienced at quite a young age because you you've effectively you lived a life before you were 16 right i mean that's effectively what it came across as in any case but mm. do you think the hardship that you experienced has helped you kind of become who you now are like do you, mm. you just always have this in the back of your mind that we've that i've come from this um and yeah. it informs what I, you do now i I know that it is. I try to, I try to fight it a lot of uh, my career of when I was in Australia and came to London. I tried to forget it. I tried to push that past away and never talk of it. And now I talk about it proudly because I know that it helps others that through my own mental health and my own struggles, I, I've been able to reach out to others and others have reached out to me that I can actually talk to these people about and say like you know this is this is what it's all about mm. and this is i can only talk from my own experience but this is what's happened to me and this is the tools and the techniques i've used to to get out of it you know yeah um you know it 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 it, it, it was a real fantastic time when my mum won the money but it was also one of the most dangerous times of of my life because with having great money leads to having great responsibility. Hey, hey yeah. And... I, um, I was just going to say, <laughs> you, the, the, I suppose that you flip things from the outside looking in, 
anyone who comes into a bit of money, a lot of people would look at that with you know green with envy. But what can happen is it leads you down a path of comfort, and um, yeah. and that's you know as dangerous as hardship, you know. But in any case, I'm I'm jumping the gun here a little bit, probably. But uh, I'll let you explain what what how that affected you. Well, it, it affected me very negatively because all as I wanted to do was party, and I partied. You know, I I partied really hard. Um, how old are you now? Are you mid twenties. I was probably tw- yeah twenty four. I think right. twenty between twenty four twenty five. So, you know, somebody of that age who's just I'd never been out of the country i'd never been out of new zealand in my whole life so my first experience of when i stepped off the plane in australia was drugs alcohol parties night clubbing consistently um as much as i could Um, it wasn't trying to go get a job i was always like i don't need a job i just keep on asking mum to wire money and she did quite happily she was like yep cool there you go there you go yep cool She's thinking like, you know, I'm, I am doing good things. I'm doing pure things. And I wasn't, right. you know, my mum was drinking pretty heavily at the time. So she's like, well, stuff it. Like, you know, we've got money now, so we're okay. So I worked at a couple of places in Melbourne. So we flew into Sydney, had a very bizarre thing that happened to me and a friend of mine on Christmas day, actually, uh, we were at a rave on Bondi beach as you as you do on Christmas Day, my my friend who was uh, who I was travelling with, I was at the rave and he had to go have Christmas lunch with his uncle that lived in Sydney. Now, before he was going to come down to the rave, he was popping into our hostel that we were living in, and uh, then he would come to the rave. So um, he 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 came to the rave and like I, I was I was dancing away, enjoying it, and I was really happy to see him. And I was like, great, give him a big hug. And he's like, I need to. I need to chat to you. And I was like, what? And he goes, our room's been broken into. And I was like, oh my God, like, okay, let's let's call the police. And he goes, no, 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 nothing's been taken. I'm like, what? Because just our room's been trashed, but I found this. And he opened an envelope and it was two locks of hair. I had dreadlocks at the time. It had one of my dreadlocks and some of hair's hair cut off with blood all over it. Eh? So yeah, I know it was bizarre, but we took we took that as a sign. So we got in contact with the police. Uh, the police came down and, you know, we, we wrote a report. And we said to the, that night, we just packed up everything and we jumped on a bus. And I had some friends living in Melbourne and we went to go stay with them literally on Boxing Day. We jumped on a bus and we got the hell out of Sydney. We took that as an omen. But mm. when I was in I, uh, I think that's, that's a sensible <laughs> sensible response to, to something yeah. like that. That's, yeah. <laughs> So then um, we went to uh, we went to Melbourne and um, there was a uh, place in St Kilda which I basically just walked into. I love the place. I'm not going to say the name of it because I'm going to tell the story about it. But it was a really great place. Walked in, spoke to the manager. The manager's like, "Cool, start tomorrow. Come down. It's absolutely fine." This should have been a red flag for me because the the next day I arrived there. He told me to come at eight in the morning. He didn't turn up until ten in the morning. So I didn't right. really know what to do. He came in absolutely off his nut. Like, I mean, like, you know, the guy the guy was still raving from the night before. 
which at the time to a young person who was really into that, I was like, this guy's like the best it's guy. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is this is who I want to hang out with. You know, this is this is my guy. So we, you know, I started working in this place and we started hanging out with this guy and you know, it was cool. But to cut a long story short, we it, I'd been working there for about three months and it was very strange because everywhere where we went out, this guy would everybody knew him. Everybody knew him. So I thought maybe he's a drug dealer. And then I, I never saw that. I never saw people come in and you kind of know people who are drug dealers because they're that type of people. But he always had money, always dressed really well. But everyone knew him. Everyone in St. Kilda knew this guy. He knew every single restaurant, bar, club, wherever I went, I was, you know, afforded the same sort of acknowledgements as, as he was. Hmm. One day at the restaurant, he comes running in and he's like, okay, you know, this place needs to be clean. He just turned into this completely different person because the boss is coming, the boss is coming. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, cool. Like, I, great, I'll be happy to meet the boss. He goes, no, 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 no. It's not that boss, it's the boss. I was like, oh, okay, cool. And then all of a sudden, a black limo pulls up out the front. It's 31 degrees in Melbourne. Two guys with back duffel jackets walk in, <laughs> stand at either end of the restaurant, okay, clearly have shotguns in there. Oh, and gosh. this old guy comes out, sits in the middle of the restaurant, orders a tomato mozzarella salad and a coffee. And my manager's doting on this, oh, my God, yeah, 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 da, 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 kisses his hand, everything. And I realized that this guy must be some type of mafia boss. Don. And yeah. then I realized the place that I work for is probably owned by the mafia and they're using it for money laundering. And then I realized that the guy that was the manager was probably in the mafia as well. So I chose not to go back there. And never really? Why, so, why was that, Matt? <laughs> I was scared. That terrified me. God, that I, I can only imagine. Me. I can only imagine. The last thing you want to do, because it equally kind of going back to your childhood as well. That's exactly the type of environment that you're trying to. Yeah, to get away from being. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it was kind of hilarious, and I always love telling that story. But it was it was really scary because all of that was going through my head is that if you've got these two guys with shotguns. I'm collateral damage. If somebody pulls up in a car and starts laying in there with a shotgun or with whatever, I'm collateral damage. Like, they wouldn't care about me. They're going to kill everything in the shop. Yeah. They want to kill the, the the main guy. So I'm like, I don't want to be around these people. I don't care how well they're connected or whatever, you know. And, I, and I'm a very addictive person. So I had always wanted to join a gang and I always wanted to be in it, but I did, never wanted to be at that level, you know. Mm. It was... It was something that I was, you know, that I was trying to avoid and trying to be a better person for. But anyway. Yeah. So did you basically just go back to your flat, pack up and leave Melbourne as well? <laughs> uh, well, pretty much. Well, basically I told mum and mum's like, okay, look, I had about two months to go before we were flying to the UK because we'd already bought our tickets to come to the, come to the UK. So mm. my mum said, look, don't you don't have to work. It's cool. I'll send you money. You just enjoy yourself, which I did immensely. And then it came to the time to fly to the UK. So um, that was a 30-hour flight. Arrived on a Saturday afternoon. It's probably raining, was it? Uh, it actually was It was actually a really, really nice day. Was um, it? And I'll never forget, my, my friend who was picking me up at the airport came to the wrong terminal. I looked at the tube map as somebody who was so young and naive. I couldn't work it out. I, I couldn't. They were saying, okay, you need to catch this line, get off there, get off there. I was terrified. So I just jumped into a cab and called a black cab from 
<laughs> from uh, Heathrow to Soho, basically. Oh, okay. So um, yeah, you, you must must have been flush for cash then. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I got there, and it was like at the time the exchange rate from New Zealand dollars to the British pound was three to one. Right. Yeah. So um, that cost a hundred. I think it was no at the time it was like ninety pounds or a hundred pounds, which was like three hundred New Zealand dollars, which was yeah. a lot of money. Yeah. At the time, but I was tired. I was knackered. I I just didn't want to be there. And then I got to Soho, and I'd never seen that amount of people in my life. I'd never seen it was just carnage. And my friend found me in the middle of Leicester Square, and I had my suitcase. We went straight to Obar, did some shots. Then I pretty much had a meltdown because I was knackered and needed to get some sleep. And that was my first introduction to the UK. Right. Um, so soon after that, we, we had got um, a flat and we knew one person here. And and I, she, we were asking her, like, you know, how do you get jobs? How do you do this? I, I had to get into work straight away. And she's like, well, get the evening standard on Thursday. They usually post jobs in there. And I saw a job. Called up the guy. I was like, look, um, you know, I'm just arrived from New Zealand. I've been here literally a week and a half. And he's like, okay, I don't really do trials, but just come in, work with me for a day. If you're good, I'll offer you a job. So I was like, cool. So I went into the newly opened So House. Uh, oh, worked crikey. with Lee Glenn, just... Lee Glenn and Paul Bavani. Wow. Yeah. And well, there's a, what I also love about that story is, is that you had to buy an evening standard to find jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's all I knew. Now, I at the time, I knew nothing about uh, So House. I didn't know what it was. Yeah, I didn't know anything. Like, I, I just remember that the guy, well, Lee, basically saying to me, he was like, look, you have to come in through the side entrance. Do not come through the front entrance. I was like, oh, okay. And he's like, you just push on a buzzer. There'll be a guy that will come down to get you. They'll take you up. You'll get changed. Da, da, da. We'll tell you the rules. Uh, so I went and worked there for a day. Um, fell in love with the place. Obviously, immediately, the food was just incredible. I had never experienced this level cooking in my life. Everybody right. that was working in this restaurant at the time were all ex-Marco, starting off on Gordon, Aubergine. Like, these are all, the at the time, the best of the best. Yeah, know? well, when uh, it, especially when it hit the scene at the, the time. Yeah. It, it was like the, you know, it was the swanky new thing, wasn't it, in uh, yeah. in, in town, for sure. What, what level did you go in as? Well, I said, oh, I, like, I didn't know. Like, after working there for, like, you know, a few hours, I'm like, I'm just going to ask for commie chef, you know, but that that's thing. And he offered me chef to party. So I was like, wow, that's amazing. He's like, no, you're good. You've got the moves. You've got the speed. You've got everything. We just need to teach you refinement. And they changed the menu every day there, you know, and right. they taught they taught me creativity. They taught me how to express my creativity because the head chef didn't want to come up with new dishes every day. So they used to force everybody on section to go, what are you cooking tomorrow? Okay, what are you going to do? And then they'll go, okay, cool, I'll try this and I'll do a tart and put this in the way. Okay, cool, try it with that, put that in there. And I used to watch this process and I was like, wow, this is incredible. God, that and is, then, that's super creative, and but collabor and, collaborative as well. Yeah, and they, and they used to really encourage that and bring it out of you. And then you had to do all of your own orders you had to, you know, compile it together and then the head chef would come up 
and you'll say, okay, I need that. And he's like, well, you haven't checked the fridge. There's two of those in there. So let's cross that off. Okay, cool. We've got that. We've got that. Okay, we've only got one of those, but half can go for that guy. Half can go for that guy. And the, what is left at the end, we'll give for staff food. Yep, keep cool. Keep on going like this. So, so yeah, it, it, I worked there for about two, two and a half years. And, and during that time, they just had opened Babington House as well. So I went down there um, and opened Babington with those guys as well, which was really interesting because I'd never been at a sort of an opening before and to be able to open Babington House. But um, another sort of crazy story when I was uh, working at Soho House, and this was mad. So when we were living in Melbourne, one of my friends had started seeing, he was working at a place called Cafe Siena, which I can say the name of. And the manager there and and my friend had got together and they started seeing each other for six months. Now, when they were over there, and I remember her saying this to us and we were like, yeah, shut up. This is, you're all shit. Like, you're not talking about this. She's like, oh, yeah, I'm leaving uh, my job at Cafe Sierra. And we were like, oh, cool. What are you going to do? And she goes, well, my best friend's Kylie Minogue. So um, oh, she's about to go. Yeah, of course. She's about to, she's about to go on tour in, in uh, Europe. So I'm going to be her tour manager. We're like, yeah, whatever, whatever. Anyway, come up to about, I've been working at So House about seven months now. I had never been inside So House. Like, none of the chefs were allowed to go out. It's a private members club. They're very strict. They were very much about protecting the people in there. Yeah. Most of the people that would come, I had never heard of in my life. Apart from Elton John, I'd heard of him. But like David Beckham, the Spice Girls, all this, I had, I had no idea who any of these people were. Right. You know, I, and, you know, I was still calling football soccer, you know, and, right, and the yeah. chefs would come, come up to me and give me a dead leg, punch me in the leg and go, don't ever call it that, you know, and, and they would be constantly taking the piss out of my accent. And I, I knew nothing about British culture, nothing. And nobody was allowed to speak to front of house apart from the head chef. And front of house weren't allowed to speak to any chefs. Now, I'm working on my section. And the GM came in and stood and just stared at me and looked at me and just said, who the fuck are you? And I, I, and I turned around and looked at him and was like, what? And, and then the head chef turned around and said, what are you doing talking to my chef for? And he's like, um, Kylie Minogue's in the room. She wants to speak to Mac. And I'm like, what? Kylie Minogue? <laughs> I was like, this is bizarre. And he's like, do you want to come through? And he's like, well, do you want to change your apron? Make sure that you look good. And I was like, I'd never been in there before. And I walked out and I, I saw it. But then I saw my friend's girlfriend, well, ex-girlfriend. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, my God, Maria. Like, what the hell? And she's like, yeah, well, I thought you, I had heard that you'd been working here. So I thought, well, just come up and say hello. And I was like, oh, my God. So I met Kylie Minogue and... Yeah, got to know, and uh, yeah, we we hung out and yeah, just had a chat. So that was sort of my cool Kylie Minogue story. Nice. But I, I I actually met quite a few celebrities at um at, at So House throughout the time that I was there. Um, all really lovely people. People. Um, yeah, it was it was yeah. great. So when you you were there for about two and a half years, you said what what did you climb the ranks in that time? Were you? Yeah, so I I got up to I got up to junior sous chef. And, and doing very well. And then at the time, I was, I would say, I was pretty heavily into drugs. I was pretty heavily into the rave scene, doing a lot of ecstasy. And that was where my whole life was really focused around at the time. Now, at the time, it would have been 1999. I, I met a girl, fell in love. 
And it was one of those whirlwind romances where if anybody has been in one of those, then everything else was inconsequential. So I did something which I really regret and I still regret to this day is I didn't show up for work and I never went back to So Outs. And it's the way I left and I'm, I'm always really gutted about that and I'm always really gutted to not have apologised for doing that to my executive chef at the time, which was a guy called Paul Bavani. And uh, I don't know if you've heard of the guy or he um, he left So House soon after that and started his own fish company. And unfortunately, while he was on one of his deliveries, um, he was hit on his mo- motorcycle and passed away. Oh, bless. Um, yeah, which was which was pretty hard. But I heard through a friend of a friend that this had, that this had happened. So it's one of the things that I regret of not ever ever doing but uh my time was up in the uk at that time i only had a two-year visa so i was in love pretty heavily involved in the rave scene you know had worked at one of the best restaurants at the time in the uk and i had to go back to new zealand and i had to work out a way of how to come back and one of the ways we thought which was the best way was uh get married so i did i got married because you're a man of extremes Oh, oh you certainly were to this point. Yeah. <laughs> As I said, Phil, this could be a four-hour conversation. Um, <laughs> yeah, so anyway, I went home and, yeah, we got married, went home. I managed to uh, obviously come back on a, on a marriage visa and, um, you know, we lived a really great life. And, um, you know, what happens when you live a, a life like that is that my, my well, now ex-wife got pregnant uh, with, with my son. Which was which was totally amazing. So we we had my had my son, and and through this time I was probably not really holding down any proper work, not really focusing on anything other than raving, DJing because that's what I was doing. It was still part of the music thing. I was uh, you know I've always uh, done music in some sort of thing. Mm. Um, and and trying to bring up my son, but not really having the responsibility of bringing up my son. Now, what happened was that September the 11th happened, and we all freaked out. The whole world freaked out. Yeah. So I thought, well, the best thing for me to do was go home. So I went home, took my new family back home, started doing some consultancy out there. Again, not really doing anything of worth, and then. Um, we broke up quite spectacularly at home. It was, it was. She wanted to come back to the UK. Wanted to bring my son. I didn't want her to come back. I didn't want her to take my son back to the UK. I wanted him to stay in. Went through a huge court battle. Decided in the end that it was really, it was destroying both of our mental health. So we both, for my son's sake, decided to stop the court proceedings and both moved back to the UK. So I came back begrudgingly because I had to leave my life in New Zealand, which was raving and drugs and everything like this. And um, and I suppose grow up, you know, learn right. learn how to be. And how a old good do you know father. at this point? I would say I was probably in the vicinity of twenty eight to thirty years old. Right, got you. So then, you know, when I came back to the UK, I um, I was really depressed, coming down off years of partying. And I was still drinking quite heavily. I also had a son and I started working in my first real head chef job at a place called The Globe in Swiss Cottage. And it was it was run by a couple of guys 
who every Thursday would do a drag show. Now it was um, it, it it was quite iconic actually of what they are uh, of what the restaurant was about and how it was based on this, but it also helped me to be creative and learn how to work with people. From here, you know, I you know started to go see a psychotherapist. I started to, you know, take beta blockers because I was suffering from really badly from anxiety. You know, I was going through divorce proceedings, which was really hard. Plus, you know, fighting with my ex-wife every day about trying to see my son and, mm. you know, do, doing all this stuff. So it, that's when I, it started to spiral really, really harshly. You know, I started getting into harder drugs. You know, I discovered crack cocaine and, and started getting into that. Goodness gracious me, man. You're, um, yeah. Do you know, I, I, um, I had no idea. I mean, I know you and I had a chat beforehand that, uh, you know, before even today we had a, a chat about your, your journey and stuff like that. And of course, you can never f- truly get to the root of all of the things that you've been involved with in your, in your life in that short time that we had together before. But my life, man, you, you have lived a life and we've not even finished yet. But we have finished for now, as that's the end of part one. Don't forget to tune in on Friday for part two, where Matt drops even more bombs from his incredible journey. Until then, please don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your podcast app of choice. And if you can take two seconds to leave us a review, that would help more than you know. We'll see you Friday for part two.